welcome in person and welcome to those joining us online. We'll be in 2 Timothy chapter 3 this morning, but we're going to start with a word of prayer. And so, Ed, would you please lead us? Heavenly Father, we just thank you. Thankful we can gather like this together to worship you. We pray that the presence will be felt this this time. Ask your spirit to be among us. Be the pastor as he leads our hearts and minds and receive what you have to teach us today from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, so from two weeks ago, so again, we'll give you some slack because it's been a little while. What kind of workers are we called to be? ourselves, it's what does God think? Is the Lord well pleased? Will he say well done, good and faithful servant? That's what matters. And that would make us unashamed if he says that. And what is all that connected to? Bondservant to deal with those in opposition. So in chapter 2, toward the end of the chapter, correcting them with gentleness. Okay, so did you hear both parts of that? Correcting and gentleness. So not just correct them and blast them, and not just, oh, I'm going to be gentle so I won't say anything, but a gentle correction, okay? Similar to what verse in Ephesians? Four fifteen. speaking the truth in love. So yes, speak the truth, don't hold back, but do it lovingly, and love doesn't mean you don't speak the truth. It's both. So... Any comments or questions on what we saw two weeks ago? Okay, let's start with chapter 3. Would somebody read just the first verse? But realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come. So what do we need to realize or grasp about the last days? What are they going to be like? Hard. hard. Okay. So they're going to be hard, not easy, 
they're going to be, you might have the word perilous, not safe. So it's, it's going to be rough, right? You maybe have heard me say, keep your seatbelt on. It's going to get interesting before it's all over. And that's what Paul is saying. So a big question about this verse is when is he talking about? The last days. So sometimes the last days means a cluster of events connected with the return of Christ. But what is it in verse 1? And how do you know? All right, well, let's look at some texts, and then we'll come back around. So Acts 2, would somebody read 14 to 18? <clears throat> Acts 2, 14 to 18, this is the day of Pentecost. The apostles and others are speaking in languages others from all over the world can understand. One of the theories of what's going on Somebody asked, what does this mean? And some were mocking, saying they're just full of sweet wine. And then Peter's going to explain what's going on. But somebody read 14 through 18. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them. Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall, shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Okay, so what does Peter tell us about the last days? Okay, so when will slash did that happen? Pentecost. Pentecost. He's explaining what's going on in Pentecost by saying this is the fulfillment of a prophecy about the last days. The spirits can be poured out. That's what you're seeing. Therefore, we must be in the last days. Okay, Hebrews 2, or Hebrews 1, verse 1 and 2. Hebrews Chapter 1, the first two verses. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Okay, so what does that verse tell us about the last days? Right, so apparently we're in the last days because Jesus has already come and is speaking. So put that together and acts together, and I would say the last days is the time interval between the first coming of Christ and his return. Okay, would you agree with that? And there's one more hint that we're on the right track if you're back in 2 Timothy 3. Look at verse 
five, what's the last phrase say? We'll look at the two through five in a minute, but what's the last phrase of chapter five? Two verse five or three verse five? Of three five, yes. Mine says avoid such people. Okay. So he's gonna he says in the last day difficult times gonna come, we'll read about what it's gonna be like. He says avoid people like that, which would suggest they're real live people in the last days <laughs> that you're going to encounter Timothy. Not just, don't worry about this because it's not till the Lord comes back and that's going to be at least 2,000 years. It's, you already have to watch out for this. So the last days have commenced with the coming of Christ. It'll get intensified when he returns. There's a cluster of events that are also called the last days. But Paul's writing saying, Timothy, you're in the last days. We're in the last days here in the 21st century. So we need to be aware that it's going to be hard. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be perilous. It's not going to be safe. So be aware of that. Um, so any questions on what we're talking about? Patrick? I was just wondering, if, is it more common to hear the day of the Lord for the, when, when Christ comes back? I think back? so. I, I would say that's a good know. observation. I've never thought about it specifically. Yeah, I, I would think that would be a much more common way of referring to specifically the okay. cluster of events around his return. Yes. Good, good observation. All right, well, let's read Paul's description of the people that will be characteristic of the last days, which already started 2,000 years ago and still going and will keep going like this till the Lord comes back. Would somebody read 2 through 5? For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, Unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Okay, so quite a list, right? It's about 19 characteristics and probably not too hard to come up with an example of each one of those words or phrases. But there's something that stands out, and it's about what people love and don't love. It's about heart. So what are three things people in the last days, starting with Christ's appearance, love? Self. Self. Hmm. That's interesting, isn't it? What else do people love? Money. Money. And what else do they love? Pleasure. Pleasure. So those are the three things they love. What don't they love? Good. Good. All right. It says haters of good, which means you don't love good if you hate it. What else? God. God. Right, and they also don't love people. If you saw the word, phrase unloving, means they don't love people. So they love self, money, pleasure. They don't love people, God, or good. So that's a heart, those are heart problems. Their affections are messed up. And what's really interesting 
They are religious people. We're in 2 Timothy 3. There are religious people who have an outward form of godliness, but they don't love God. Isn't that scary? So what's missing? Right in verse 5. The power. The power of God, right? They have the outward form. There's no life. There's no changed heart. So you can go through all the motions, but if you have a heart that loves self, money, and pleasure, and doesn't love God, people, or what's good, it, there's no power there. There's no miracle of rebirth that changes the heart, changes the life, changes what you love and don't love. And so let's just look at one example of the outward appearance but not the reality. And we'll touch on this actually in the message this morning too, but we'll go to Matthew 23. Matthew 23. Would somebody read 25 to 28? Hear how often it went outside this, but inside this, outside this, inside that. So the form, the appearance of godliness or religion, but inside it's a mess. Um, so this morning, just a sneak preview, Luke 12, just the first <coughs> verse, Luke 12, verse 1. So we just saw Jesus call out the Pharisees for being hypocrites. And he says to his disciples, his followers, you're not exempt from hypocrisy yourself. Beware of it. Be on guard against it. Take preventative measures against it because this could happen to you too. You could be one thing on the outside and something different on the inside. So fight that. Don't be content with that. Okay, so any comments or questions on those verses in 2 Timothy 3? about the last days. Okay, let's read six through nine, please. They are the kind who worm their way into homes and gain control over weak-willed women. 
who are loaded down with sins and are swayed by all kinds of evil desires, always learning but never able to acknowledge the truth. Just as James and Jane Brees opposed Moses, so also these men opposed the truth, men of depraved minds, who, as far as the faith is concerned, are rejected. But they will not get very far because, as in the case of those men, their folly will be clear to everyone. Okay, thank you. So who is the favorite target of these people who an outward form of empty religion to recruit? Weak women, isn't that an interesting <laughs> target audience? So who are, and I don't know how to pronounce them, Johns and Jambres, whoever, who are these people that he just said, he, he made reference to them, who are they? And do not feel bad if you don't know. <laughs> Seem to have something to do with Moses. Something to do with Moses, okay, that, because that's right in the text. So go to Exodus, chapter 7, and would somebody read 8 through 12 of Exodus 7. Eight through 12? Please. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. The Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the, magi the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. So no names are mentioned, but there's something called the Targum, which, again, don't feel bad if you know what that is, but it's a Jewish commentary on the Old Testament scriptures, and that's where the names get filled in of these magicians of Egypt, okay? So not a slam dunk, that's who they are, but the best we can tell, Paul assumes his, that Timothy and his first century readers would get that reference um, even though we don't, can't look at Exodus and go, oh, there's their names. Virtually everybody goes, it must be the men in this Exodus 7 passage. Okay, so any comments or questions on that? Okay, let's read 10 through 14. Back in 2 Timothy 3. Ten through fourteen. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, 
Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. Okay, thank you. So I'll just summarize most of that and then ask a question. So we've already found out difficult times will come. They're already started. And Paul said it's going to get worse. Did you catch that? They'll proceed from bad to worse. So first century was already bad. It's been getting worse for 20 centuries. Others are going to go off the rails. We already saw that. Paul's going to tell us in the next chapter, I'm going away. I'm going to get my head chopped off and be gone off the scene. But, Timothy, even though you're young and weak and sickly, you hold the course. You continue in what you've been following in spite of what everybody else is doing around you. So stay faithful. Yeah, it's going to be rough. And there, you'll be in the minority. And I won't be there to help anymore. Hang in there. And it kind of reminded me of a, one of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Resolved to glorify God, also resolved, whether others do or not, I will. So, Timothy, you might be the only one in Ephesus <laughs> doing this, and that's okay. You be faithful. Everything else is going to pot around you, but you be faithful. You continue in what you've started and been following. So, any questions on that? So why is verse 12 true? Especially if you could give a couple verses. I don't know the reference for sure, but Jesus said that, you know, in this world you will have trouble. Take heart, I've overcome the world. Okay, good. That's a, also a good one. I was thinking of um, John 15. That's John 16, 33. In this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. John 15, would somebody read 18 through 20? If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world will love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. Thank you. And then 1 John 3.13. 1 John 3.13. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. Okay. So Jesus told us ahead of time, and John reiterates it. Don't be surprised. This is not a strange thing. The world hated Jesus. The world's going to hate us. That's just reality. So here's a question, and there's two ways to look at it. So how would we interpret the lack of persecution that we currently experience? Because, I mean, other than getting called a name once in a while or a cold shoulder once in a while, or some awkwardness in family relations once in a while. I really, is it really valid to say, oh, we're so persecuted here in America? Anybody just feeling like, oh, wow. Just let me just memorize First Peter, because I'm so persecuted. So two angles. What's one possibility? It's still coming. OK, good. So. I thought of Acts 2, 
And if you were with us in Sunday School in Acts, you might remember some of the comments we made. So let's just start at 46 and 47 of Acts 2. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yes, so that phrase, having favor with all the people. So there was a season God granted the church where there wasn't persecution. There was favor. And then the next chapter, the persecution starts. So it didn't happen yet. And I, so I appreciate how you said that, Tess. We just haven't got it yet in full force. You've got this little minor league persecution. Um, most of us really can't have a martyr's complex about that. But it might be coming, and I would say probably is coming, in greater force as we get closer to the end. Um, the other possibility in light of John 15 would be what? Why does the world, the world hates us because it hates Jesus. And what was the other reason the world hates us instead of loves us? Well, that's true, Ed. That's right. Yeah, so I called you out of the world. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. So if we're trying to just be just like the world and be chummy with the world and like, oh, I want you to like me, world. <laughs> the world's not going to hate us. They're not fine. You want to blend in with us? We'll tolerate you. But if we are different, it might cause a little more bumping. So that's not a guilt. Like, so if you're not being persecuted, you're worldly. I'm just saying, examine your heart, because John 15 raises the possibility I'm not experiencing any persecution because I'm just like the world, or close enough to the world doesn't notice any difference. Or it could just be we're in a season where it hasn't happened yet in Sioux City area in 2023. So I don't know which it is, but worth asking the question. Because <laughs> it's, a, it's a rather strong statement. All who will live godly and Christ will be persecuted. So it doesn't sound like just the hardcore people will be or just apostles or just, I mean, it sounds like it's a pretty common thing. Angela? And then at First Peter, it says you were called for this purpose. Yeah, so, yeah, so we sh again, we shouldn't be surprised. And so brace ourselves, keep your seatbelts on. It probably is coming. If we're spared, great. I'm not a fan <laughs> of persecution. Or nobody really likes that. But we need to be ready for it as it comes. So any comments or questions on that? In verse 11, he says, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me. Mm -hmm. And um, I wonder, too, if just how God is preparing us through suffering and trial for persecution so whether it's you know in America the church isn't going through persecution like they, the church is in other parts of the world but certainly we go through um, difficult things that, oh, yeah. that would cause us to prepare for 
what might come in the future mm -hmm. for us. So if it's you know things like job loss or family issues or health issues that God takes us through those things in order to strengthen our faith that we um, as trials come that we're you know more prepared. Amen. Yeah. So remember how David argued when Saul said, "Well, you can't face this giant," and he said. When I was a shepherd boy, uh, I went against a lion and a bear. And he says, the God who delivered me from the lion and the bear will deliver me from this Philistine. So he built on past experiences. I've been through some tough things, <laughs> some dangerous things. God got me through. And that strengthens my faith to believe he's going to help me now, which I think is kind of where you're going, Tess, if I'm not mistaken. It's like, I've gone through your cancer scare, going through joblessness, going through other trials, family stuff. And it deepens our relationship with God. It, it strengthens our faith. It, it gives us endurance and perseverance so that as the outside kind of persecution comes, it's like we have a track record with God. Okay, I've tr seen him act before. I've trusted him. He's got me through. He's sustained me. He's preserved me. He's, um, he's been there for me. So this isn't going to change that just because the culture got more hostile than it used to be. So yeah, it's a great observation. And that's what I think he's trying to encourage Timothy with is, okay, I've been through a bunch of stuff already. God's got me through it all. And God will do that for you too, Timothy. You'll, you'll be okay because <laughs> the Lord's with you. I think too, as a pretty comfortable church that it, you know, to read these things and to recognize that persecution is happening all over the world and that we have the freedoms that we have here is even a greater call to say, you know, pray, pray for your, pray for your brothers and sisters around the world who are suffering in this way because you have the ability to do that and to, you know, support or raise money to help missionaries or you know just because we're comfortable here and we're not going through persecution, we should be even more. I'm talking, I'm preaching to myself here, like we should be even more, have a greater awareness of what's going on in the world and how can we, as this free, pretty comfortable church, give and support, and whether it's through prayer or giving or missionary, whatever it is, that we should be aware of that and have a greater awareness of that. So there's, there's tools, if you're interested in pursuing that, there's something called Voice of the Martyrs, um, which has a, a monthly publication, or you can just go online. Uh, just church history, <laughs> Fox's Book of Martyrs, or other resources from just learning, wow, our forefathers for 20 centuries have been enduring all kinds of stuff. Um, and again, just to be aware um, and prayer, other ways of, of trying to encourage those who are being persecuted in a way we're not, much more intense than we are. Um, good. So any other comments or questions on what we've seen so far. Okay, let's read 15. Just verse 15. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So where did Timothy come to know the sacred writings? Right, so remember back in chapter 1, verse 5, 
I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice. So, and we learned from Acts that Timothy had a Christian mother, but, uh, or a Jewish background Christian mother and a Greek unbelieving father. But mom and grandma taught Timothy the Bible. <laughs> and the Bible has, so again, you know this, right? If you're a parent, Deuteronomy 6, maybe it's worth reading that again. Deuteronomy 6, 6 and 7. So it sounds like Eunice and Lois were following that verse and teaching Timothy the Bible. And um, don't underestimate how precious it is that the scriptures give us the wisdom that leads to salvation. Go to 1 Corinthians 1.21. 1 Corinthians 1.21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So we were not going to figure out God in our own wisdom. We need revelation from God in the scriptures to know God and his way of salvation. And that's what we have here. So that's a precious gift. Okay, 16 and 17, very famous verses about the Bible. Somebody please read 16 and 17. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. Okay, thank you. So what does it mean when we say the Bible is inspired? Is it like... The works of Shakespeare are, have a high level of human insight. Is it like a story about the Special Olympics that just makes us feel warm inside, inspiring? What does it mean by inspired? The Spirit of God used man. Very good. So you see the word God breathed. And um, so here's just a short definition. God breathed is the idea of God exerted a supernatural influence upon men by which their writings conveyed what God wanted conveyed and speak with his authority. The ultimate author of the Bible is God. When the Bible speaks, it is God speaking. So the Bible, the author of the Bible, capital A, is God. He used human writers or human small letter A authors to communicate the truth he wanted said. Um, can you think of some other verses that affirm that? Kind of three other key texts that talk that way. Second Peter 1. What does that say? Uh, no prophet, well, I have to read it. Okay, you read it. No prophet speaks on his own behalf. Why don't you read it? I was vamping <laughs> until I got there. Uh, verse. 
20. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So the Holy Spirit is carrying along men who are writing the Scriptures. Okay, 1 Thessalonians 2.13. 1 Thessalonians 2.13. not just the word of man, it's not just men's religious thoughts and opinions in a collection, it's the word of God. God speaks. John 17, 17, just a short verse, hope you have it memorized. Sanctify them in the truth. What's the rest of it? Your word, Your word is truth. Okay, so that's inspiration. Here's a quick summary. Some of you might be familiar with the Baptist Catechism. We tried to do it with our kids growing up. Question five, how do we know the Bible is the word of God? Answer, the Bible evidences itself to be God's word by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its parts, and its power to convert sinners and to edify saints. But only the spirit of God can make us willing to agree and submit to the Bible as the word of God. So there's great apologetics you can show the, the unity of the Bible, 40 different authors over like 1,500 years' time of writing and archaeological confirmation and prophecies fulfilled. You can do all kinds of evidential kinds of things, but ultimately, the Holy Spirit has to convict and make us willing to agree and submit, this is God's word. I need to listen to it. So any questions on that? Okay, what does the word profitable mean? It says it's profitable. What does that mean? Helps us make money? That's what the health and wealth people say. <laughs> What's profitable? It's good for us. That would be a good way to say it. I'm going to steal that. <laughs> Valuable. Valuable. You can say beneficial. It's not a waste of our time and effort. It's useful and helpful and well worth any time we invest in it because it gives great gain. So it's not just idle words. Deuteronomy 33, this, these words are not idle words. They are your life. So what is scripture profitable for? Four things. What do you see? First one, teaching or instruction. So what God wants us to know. What's the second thing? Reproof. What's that? I would have defined it as correction, but that's coming next. That's next, so it must be different. <laughs> What's reproof? Telling somebody the teaching they have is wrong? Is that part of it? Well, not just teaching, but anything that's wrong. So something that's wrong or needs to be changed is a reproof. So you might tell your kids... You need to do that differently. That's reproof. <coughs> Correction would be how to do it the right way, right? So reproof is when you're off the track, correction is how to get back on the right track. Okay, and then what's training in righteousness? 
That would seem to, to be a lot like the teaching. Okay. If you use your same analogy, maybe it's staying on the track. Staying on the track. How to stay on the track would be another way, if you like the train thing. Um, so the word training is actually the same word used as child training. And it's just the idea of the ongoing process of shaping our character to be more and more like Christ. Righteousness. We want to be righteous like Christ. So it shapes us. The application of the other things that came before that. Yeah. What, will you talk about reproof again? Like if I proof a paper, I'm, I mean, just the difference between reproof and correction, showing what's wrong so, and then how to do it right is correction. So Yeah. So reproof, yeah, letting us know something is wrong or something needs to change is the reproof side. Correction is how to make it right and how to do it the right way. Yeah. That, that's how I would distinguish the two of them. Okay, so what is the aim or the intended outcome of the scriptures? What's the goal? That we would be complete. Okay. Ready to do good works. All right, so complete means not lacking anything necessary for a given task or situation. Equip means provided or furnished with everything you need to meet a demand. You could say all set. So a question as we go into worship, personally and as a church, is how can we give this book the attention and the reverence it deserves as God's word? How can we give this book the attention and reverence it deserves as the word of God? And so here's two texts, and we'll close with this. So the reverence, just read this this morning in my quiet time. How's that for providential timing? Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Isaiah 66, 1 and 2. Thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Isn't that interesting? Trembles at my word. At the very least, doesn't that mean takes it very seriously? I mean, I don't necessarily know that we're all going to physically tremble. I'm not thinking that's the old goal. But to have a heart that bows in reference. This is God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, speaks today. Not just used to speak back then. Speaks this morning through this book. I need to have an appropriate reverence for what I'm hearing. And then the attention or eagerness, 1 Peter 2, verse 2. 1 Peter 2, verse 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you may grow up in your salvation. Okay. So, those of you who are moms, how, how do babies feel about milk? You don't have to be a mom to know that one. You don't even need to be a mom, but let's have the moms jump in. Do you have to guilt them into it? Come on, baby. If, what kind of baby are you? You don't want your milk? 
What a sorry excuse for a kid. <laughs> All the other babies like milk. <laughs> Good babies like milk. But that's what we do with the Bible, isn't it? You should read your Bible more. What's wrong with you people? And Peter says, it's much different than that. So what is it like? What do babies, how do babies feel about milk? They depend on it. Hmm, I wonder if there's a parallel there. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. You can't live without the Bible anymore than you can live without food. What else? Not satisfied till they get it. Not satisfied till they get it. Thank you. That's what I'm looking for. There's a longing, there's an eagerness, there's a desire there. And if we're lacking that desire, ask for it. Psalm 119, 36. Incline my heart to your testimonies. Give me the one to. Make, get, command what you will, grant what you command. You command me to desire the Bible the way a baby loves milk. Give that to me. Give me that kind of heart. So I am eager. Oh, the Bible's going to be preached this morning? Oh, I can't wait. Oh, I get to have a quiet time this morning? I can't wait. That's how babies are. I can't wait till the next feeding. So... We're dependent on God, aren't we? Because <laughs> we can't create the desires we need. So we ask God for them. God works us to will and to do his good pleasure. We need the will and the ability. So that's what I wanted to end on, and I made it in before the time. So any last comments or questions about the Bible? So the newborn part is the analogy. It's not what kind of Christian you are. Right. Um, so yeah, look at a newborn baby. How do they desire milk? All Christians, however old you are in the Lord, have that desire. Not if you're a newborn Christian, you should be desiring the milk of the Word. But after that, it's okay. So no, thank you for pointing that out. All right, let's close in prayer.